Welcome to this yet another samsara and nirvana and Buddha nature session. We get to reflect just by the very title of it. It gives us to reflect on where we are, to be real, giving ourselves a reality check, not find thinking ourselves in the clouds. And then yet at the same time don't feel too dejected. Because there's the possibility of nirvana. And for that, the wherewithals, the factors necessary are all in us. We have a full furnished laboratory within us. Within that is the Buddha nature. So it's really interesting. Lineup of these topics all make perfect sense. So with this inspiration, let's now sit for a few minutes in silence, in settling our mind. Letting go of any bugging thoughts that may be concerning things about the past, into the future, into here and now, anything else that's bugging you. Merely acknowledge them. Gently ask them to go. At least for this short period of silent meditation. And to facilitate that, choose any favorable topic or object you to focus on, concentrate on, so that you could bring the mind down to the pace, like that of a natural rhythm of breathing. If anyone is finding difficult to focus on any chosen object, such as the breath or so, it will be good to take three or more rounds of deep, deliberate breathing. When you do so, try to feel the sensations of the breathing, along with the mind being aware of it almost to the point of becoming it, and then slowly settle into natural rhythm of breathing. Where you let the breathing just happen on its own, in whatever way requires to be, irrespective of whether the rounds are even or not, Regular, irregular. In respect of that, let it be just as natural as possible. 
Let's take a few minutes to cultivate a proper motivation. In Tsongkhapa's Lambrim Chemo, when he begins by telling us how to actually conduct the practice, he puts meditation into perspective by saying that from time immemorial, from time beginningless, we have always been under the control of our mind, not the other way around. And the mind instead has been following the directions of the afflictions and its rude ignorance, not other pos positive qualities that it could have generated, that it could have there is an interval, but mostly it has been following the dictates of afflictions. That has been the way from the beginning of this time. Who knows why? But that has been the case, and it's quite evident from my own example right now. Even in the midst of having met Dharma, that always picks at these afflictions. More good, particularly their root general, their captains in the form of self centeredness, and their great general, self grasping, self grasping. Nonetheless, our mind is so difficult to listen to it, let alone change to this effort. At the same time, if we keep persisting, then yes, the resistance will loosen up, and eventually it will have to give in. And in many of you, it may have already done so in some way or the other. So that's a great encouragement. So having seen a glimpse of what the mind can do, other than what it has been always been doing, how this change is possible, even if it is a little bit, it shows us that, yes, if we keep persisting in our positive ways, in our positive pursuits, mind would have no other choice but to listen and eventually relent to this effort. So keeping that in mind, we tell to ourselves, ask ourselves, how best can I use my life What way of living would be something that you would unquestionably approve of when we ourselves are on our deathbed and look back into our life? Irrespective of whether we believe in lives after now or if we think that this is the one and the only life, Irrespect of that, think of 
what would it be by which we can be assured that the life that we have lived has been spent well. Undoubtedly, being of help to others is the most noble thing that we can do. Just merely serving oneself. That's something even the animals do, naturally. And they do very well, including insects and all this. Even maybe microbes, tiny, tiny organisms. They take care of themselves, attending to their needs. In some, some cases, we far lag behind them, even, even in pursuing self-interest. Whereas, spending the whole life serving oneself, even if successfully, in, order, in whatever ways we understand it, the life would have been wasted. We would not have made any headway in the true sense of the word, in having lived the so-called precious human birth, or precious human birth. A kind of a birth equipped with this marvelous brain, which is capable of thinking far, planning ahead, caring expensively, and developing it immensely. See if we could all agree that, yes, provided we can, at any given time, the best would be to serve others, make others happy, to put others ahead of oneself, irrespective of our spiritual worldview, or our personal worldview, with that aligning to believing in after life, or just this one and only life. If we agree on this, and also agree on the fact that by serving others, we would have even served ourselves better, far better. Not that this has to be the inspiration or motivation behind helping others, but that's just the natural byproduct of helping others. Whereas if we just merely focus on ourselves, even allowing that we were successful, we would have only served ourselves, we would only earn our own interest, not that of others. Whereas thinking of others genuinely, sincerely, and working for others, one would have not only served others and benefited others, but also as a byproduct without having to think about it. One's own interest, genuine, lasting, worthy interest would have been served. Think along these lines. See if you have difficulty agreeing to this. 
if so, address this. Think through it. If you already agree with this, think of how many levels of serving others there could be. There can be that are within your reach, be that in your aspiration level, be that in your actual action level, be that in your preparation level. will determine certain intention to keep doing this, to even up it. From a Buddhist perspective, particularly following the Mahayana tradition, the highest of such aspiration of serving others would be to pursue full awakening, full fulfillment of one's potential in the form of the world, for the sake of all sentient beings, while at the same time committing to doing one's best in the meantime until one makes it there in serving others as well. Let's all feel motivated to use this session in making progress in this direction, be that through stronger agreement, stronger determination, commitment, even new insights, new ideas, or being clear about how better one could have done what one has done, just wait for the opportunity to deliver it. Okay, so now the motivation is set, and <laughs> and I have the free hand to say whatever I like, <laughs> because you asked whatever you think is suitable, say it. Not that I would know it, I would ask my own gurus to channel their direction through me. So, we are on page 279. We made big headway last <laughs> See? Two pages! That's a lot! Each has so many words. Each word has so many letters. <laughs> And that's not even including the spaces between them. <laughs> okay, before we we 
call it the dandil with the with the first part of this chapter 12 i want to dwell a little bit on the very last last sentence that's on top of page 279 okay so last time we said since since the mind is since the mind has the natural capacity to be aware and to understand when all obscurations have been removed it will be able to directly perceive all phenomena including directly perceiving them from the prasangika point of view simultaneously directly perceiving all phenomena simultaneously that includes the two truths right both the two truths simultaneously okay we talked about it and tried our best to at the very least have some sense of how how that might be possible how that might be might feel like again it was wasn't it today after lunch the recitation ended with appearance emptiness it's always a challenge when i have appearance i lose emptiness when i have emptiness i lose appearance now i'm trying to make this eye see emptiness and this eye see appearance and kind of look at them steadily and say you just focus on emptiness you on appearance okay And, and do the best and bring them together <laughs> and if it helps even do like this they will come together <laughs> okay anyway now that's not where i wanted to focus today what's that today i want to start from the the very last sentence a buddha's omniscient mind is able to realize simultaneously both world and ultimate truth with a single consciousness i remember very clearly venerable when using this term world we had a series of back and forth world truth I mean it is it it stands for conventional truth and the other one is ultimate truth but here we are calling it the veiled truth and the tibetan term is kunzop tempa there it is not so much the object itself is the veiled the observer is the veiled the observer is the one with abstraction the observer is the one with 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 the uh, uh with the hand hand with a what do you call it? handicap the, the observer is the handicap not being able to see everything and in whatever he sees is sees through the veil so everything that is seen by this abstract obstructed handicapped consciousness which is hampered which for for which it's seeing the object clearly is hampered by some veil in between so 
any object that comes under this topic or under under this purview becomes the conventional truth, although it has to be little nuanced, little nuanced, because even emptiness is seen by seen indirectly by an inferential consciousness, right? And that inferential consciousness has a veil between the, its object, emptiness, and itself. Everything conceptual is necessarily veiled in seeing its object, in that it's always mediated. It doesn't see its object directly, because there is a mediator in between. That mediator is called generic, I don't know, for, for, for want of a better English term, to make sense, it is called generic image. But that's that's direct translation from Tibetan. Some call it meaning generality, even worse. <laughs> so here it is not so much the objects themselves are the world, but the observer is the world. And in a way, it it comes out the same that since the object, the observer is veiled, and through this through this veil, it sees its objects, its corresponding objects. The the objects get veiled. <laughs> but here is the the nuance is here. We virtually de define the two truths: ultimate truth and conventional truth. Even the translation ultimate truth is not a, not not a perfect word choice because the this 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 word for which we call it ultimate and then we stay put on it so because we have to uh, be consistent uh, in Tibetan by being consistent using the same word it doesn't necessarily. Uh, what do you call mess up or or add to uh, a mis possible misunderstanding but in english is that is it does in uh, anyway so i will not go there because that will lead me to discussing the different schools we will stick with prasangi madhimika prasangi madhimika so this this way of calling the two truths, which encompasses everything. By the way, even the truth is is a problem for me. Is the book the truth? Is a, is is book a truth? That's so strange, right? Everything is truth because everything is included within the true truth. Either one has to be ultimate truth or or well truth. So that means my mala is the truth. You are a truth. Falsehood is the truth. False is truth. Yeah, even calling the four noble truths truths is a problem. 
It's about the pain itself, not about the truth about of the pain. It's 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 not the truth of pain. It's rather the true pain, the true suffering, the true cause of suffering, the true path, the true cessation. Not truth about them. So likewise, the same problem is here. But there's no better, no better option. So we stick to it, and we we have a mutual understanding that this is not the not the usual truth that we speak of. No, rather pointing to anything. So what I was going to point to is that this way of calling the true two, what do you call, two groups of phenomena, two groups of phenomena within which everything is included. Calling these two groups by this name is giving us some clue, or I, as I said, even gives us some kind of a way of defining the two, two groups of phenomena. So in the whale's truth category, those are things which are only true to a veiled consciousness, not to an unveiled ultimate consciousness. That which is only true to a veiled consciousness, not to an ultimate consciousness. So, whereas in the case of the ultimate truth, ultimate truth are those truths or those things which are, which may be true to a world, but not only to that, even as well to an ultimate consciousness. I mean, this is, I think, Geshe Yishidavila, mentioned this, spelled this out very clearly. More particularly, this veiled consciousness, in relation to which this whole group is defined, identified, is the self-grasping. The veiled consciousness in the form of self-grasping is the subject here, and anything that is only true to a, a self-grasping, uh, a self-grasping consciousness, not to an ultimate consciousness, is all necessarily conventional truth. And on the other hand, in the case of the ultimate truth, it doesn't need to be true only to an ultimate truth. It could be true also to a real truth, but not only to that but also to an ultimate consciousness. So that's how it makes a difference. Are you clear on this? Let me say one, one, one time. <laughs> there are things, things like cups and mugs and computer are things that are true only in the face of a veiled consciousness, not true uh, ultimate consciousness. But phenomenon like emptiness is true 
not only to a veiled consciousness, but also to an ultimate consciousness. Okay, I will leave it there. And uh, so, uh, and then and, and, and kind of make sense of this. Uh, we're calling it differently, because in Tibetan, we call them differently. That same conventional truth is called Kunzup Demba, Tanya Demba, like that. So that's why uh, Venerable had to come up with a different way of calling it, so that it could, uh, what do you call, match with that. And besides, it brings, uh, brings, uh, brings, brings up a whole new perspective of, of, of teasing it away from the other group of phenomena. By the way, the other group is very, has very, very few members but as strong. The other one is overcrowded. <laughs> but, but when it comes to fighting, they don't even think of it. So, it's, I mean, if it were a voting system, then of course it will make a difference, but, <laughs> but not otherwise. Anyway, so the reflections. Let's now review the various factors that obstruct the mind's knowing phenomena. Obviously, from a Buddhist perspective, we can the term obstruct itself takes a state to obst obstructions or obscurations, which are which are true. popular ones, the so-called afflicted, afflicted or afflicted obscuration and cognitive obscuration. But then sometimes we even speak of a third obscuration, right? And uh, what do you call that third obscuration? Pardon? I see. Oh, the latencies are included within the cognitive oscillation. In the way, by the way, in in the Prasangika Madhyamika system, it's only the latencies that make up the cognitive oscillation. Even subgrasping attitude itself is included within the afflicted. But we speak of a third, third obscuration. It's called nyomju kitiba. What do you call nyomju? Absorption or stabilization? Something is stabilization. Sumeki nyomju. I think it is absorption. Pardon? Oh, that's that's not equilibrium. Here, here in this case we're using the same term that we used for the four levels of formless concentration practices. What do you call that? Absorption, I think. Absorption. So absorptive absorptional <laughs> because if I say absorptive it's like oh that that obscuration absorbs something. <laughs> so 
So I have no way but to call the call it absorptional <laughs> absorptional obscuration. By the way, that is identified to emphasize the obscuration specific to cultivating concentration practices. There can be some arhats who would have become arhat, thus having completely eliminated afflictions, even including its root, its seeds, but haven't paid attention to the concentration and have yet to and and and, and only make and only made do with shamatha and vipassana, not bringing it all the way up to absorption past the nine yeah past the another uh not, not the nine another five six steps to that there's a name for that such such a such a arhat pardon i see yeah sometimes people call it dry I don't know why do you call that. We call the Sharab Changdul, one who has been liberated only through the means of wisdom, not with the aid of concentration. Of course, not completely no concentration, but concentration at the level of absorption. Well, I'm thinking maybe not. I just I don't know the word absorption or obscuration. The only thing I could think of was those things that called dysfunctional tendencies, but I don't think that has to do with concentration. Uh, I see, I see. I can't think of a term that what the term would be. Yeah, we usually use this term, yunju, which is for absorption, and it has direct connection with the cultivation of high-level concentration. High-level concentration, uh, not even that of, of, of the formless realm, but even of the form realm. The first form realm stabilization. By the way, we choose to call the form concentrations as stabilizations and the formless concentrations as absorptions. But in Tibetan, we also use, on occasions, we also use the same, the absorption term all across the board. Yeah. So that's specific to concentration. So they could be, which is to suggest that one doesn't necessarily have to develop high-level concentration beyond and above shamatha and vipassana to attain to attain maybe to attain dry liberation to attain bare liberation right oh now it makes sense let me have some water. So the other one is called Yige Chanin, number 12. One who is liberated on, on both the accounts, from both the parts, from both the points, from both sides, which means from the affliction side as well as from the obstacles to the cultivation of absorption. Anyway, uh, anyway, yeah, but then there can be so many obstructions to knowing, to the mind's capacity of knowing. Our own bad karmas, negativities, 
wrong way of thinking. Uh, what was that? Uh, what's the other one? Chinjilokitawa. What kind of attention? Yeah, inappropriate attention. All other afflictions, they can all serve as a means of obstructing the mind, in clouding the mind, and thus it serves as obstructing it from seeing objects clearly. Okay. A Buddha's omniscient mind is and is able to realize simultaneously both veiled and ultimate truth with a single consciousness. So contemplate that all of these can be eliminated. Yeah, for this for this one has to really know the process by which the afflictions arise. From the Prasangika Madhyamika point of view, uh, I think in in Tsongkhapa's uh, illumination of the intent, mm, with this root in Chandrakirti's uh, entering the middle way, that in turn having its source in Nakajuna's fundamental treatise, that in turn in the sutras, it speaks of a sequence by which an affliction arises. Of course, all of the tenet schools come up with their own, with their own version of how afflictions arise. Of course, they have to come up with it. They cannot escape. Because the whole point is how to address afflictions. For that to be successful, one has to at least come up with some theory of how it comes about. So, just to give you a taste, in the case of Abhidhamma, in the case of Abhidhamma, which is considered a little lower uh, tennis school, uh, it says, Afflictions arise because of three things. You have the object nearby, and you have afflictions uneliminated. Un and in between the connection, you unknowingly, voluntarily provide that connection. <laughs> we unwill, un, unwillingly, yet voluntarily, <laughs> I don't know it, whether it makes sense or not, because there's no one pushing us to do that. We do it. So how, how else to call it then voluntarily? But not with full awareness. We provide the connection, and they connect, and then the communication happens. <laughs> you have the seed of affliction within you, and there is no object. Attractive, non-attractive, etc., or neutral, whatever, and then you provide the connection. You say, oh, you, you either in the form of a judgment, in the form of a dislike, in the form of criticism, whatever, and that connects with the object, 
And with that seed within you, it gives rise to afflictions. Say there is an attract, uh, uh, good looking object and you have attachment within you. If you don't provide the connection, it's just, it's just there and you, you don't have to be attached to it. But when you provide the connection, say, oh, that's so good, 100% good, so good, without even the slightest defect at all, you're providing the connection. <laughs> now the, in, in Georgia, we call the Georgia power, that provides the power. <laughs> Here you call it eye power, eye power, iPhone, eye power, I whatever. So you provide that power. You call it eye power. <laughs> and because of that, you generate affliction. And it is very, very empowering because it says that even if you are not arhat yet and you have afflictions within you, you can still stay free or stay away from from problem, even in the midst of objects surrounding you, because you have the final say whether you provide the connection or not. If you keep it from going there, it's like you can go freely through all the objects without being, without bumping into them, <laughs> without bumping into them, without I don't know. Yeah, one of these days I'll do a talk on a talk with the meaning, but all the expressions that I've been picking up from all of you. Yeah, it, it's quite in, interesting. And I sometimes worry if I might forget my Tibetan. But for sure I will improve my English. And one day I will show you how I, what I've collected and make them into a bunch of uh, meaningful expressions. So, yeah, so that's, that's their take. But in the case of, in the case of Prasankhika uh, Madhyamika, it's a little fine-tuned. It says that for afflictions, necessarily, the very foundation has to be self-grasping. The very foundation of an affliction is, the very lifeline is provided by self-grasping. You grasp at something, not necessarily by adding any color to it, as good, as inherently good, inherently bad, inherently neutral, nothing. You just have to just see it inherently existent. And then based on that, you then add a layer to it by saying, it is not just inherently existent, but inherently good, inherently bad, inherently negative, etc. But that, adding that color will give direction which way you are going. That's usually called chinji. Mm. Chinji logelo. Which is, um, I think, according to this translation of inappropriate attention, it will be an in, in, inappropriate perception, inappropriate uh, 
what do you call addition color do you add to it let on your yes yes this is very clearly reflected in this statement in in the fundamental thesis on the wisdom where it says let on your say better you if you aspire for liberation then the way to attain liberation is by seizing by seizing karma and by seizing afflictive actions and the afflictions that give rise to them. But the question is, how do you seize them? Let on your say Because the let on your so so the next question is where does or where do lay and your karma and affliction come from? So that I could work on severing them and thus be liberated. And then the next line says, Let on your namdole. Let on your namdole. The karma, the afflicted actions. And so if you if you are seeking liberation, the only way to do only way to succeed in that is by eliminating afflicted karma actions induced by the afflictions and the afflictions themselves. These two are to be eliminated. But the question arises where these two come from. The next line says, These two, even by calling them calling them by their names, the le, the afflicted karma and the affliction, they come from Namdo. Namdo, namdo is conceptual, distorted conceptual thoughts. But here it is specifically used in 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 in, in a uh, particular sense. Not conceptual thoughts in general are considered to be the cause uh, of uh, of the afflicted afflict, afflictions and the actions induced by them. It is referring to this so-called. The inappropriate, inappropriate coloration, you may call it inappropriate coloration. And where does this come from? That let on your moon, 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 and where does this inappropriate discoloration, uh, inappropriate coloration or discoloration, which is responsible for giving rise to afflictions and the afflicted actions arise? Where does this conceptual thought or conceptual distortion come from? This comes from grasping at elaboration, grasping at fabrication. Not just fabrication in general, but fabrication to the tune of seeing things as inherently existent. Now the question is: Okay, now I know the culprit is here, right? The self-grasping. How do you deal with it? By emptiness. That elaboration, which 
is a direct translation, but it means grasping an inherent existence, is addressed by no other forces but by the understanding of emptiness. Not just an understanding. I mean, of course, you have to begin with understanding, and eventually integrating it, embodying it, and then making it. Yeah, and then making it a forceful uh, antidote. Forceful antidote. Not just barely understanding emptiness, but um, and under understanding emptiness with a force to able to really, really punch. Really, really, uh, if I have this as a gesture, then it will be punch, right? Yeah, Re really hit uh, at the self-grasping. In this regard, it is important to... So, so here, I mean, as you have seen the steps, the suffering, right? Suffering comes from afflictions and the actions induced by them. Or you could say, if you want to expand it, sufferings comes from the karmic actions, they in turn from the afflictions, that in turn from inappropriate distortion or conceptual thoughts, that in turn comes from grasping its inherent existence. And that is addressed only by understanding emptiness. So there's an there's a in-between. There's something in-between, between the self-grasping and the afflictions and the karma. And that is directly translated, it means distorted, distorted, uh, distorted mind or, or, or misrepresenting mind. So anyway, it's I, I very clearly remember my teacher giving another analogy of a of a tanka, of a tanka painting, on of a the canvas, the canvas on which you draw the painting. It is like the self grasping itself. Now, based on that, you make the initial greets and the drawing. That's like the next step of uh, what do you call distorted or inappropriate uh, coloration. And based on that, you, you generate attraction, judgment, hate, I mean, annoyance, etc. And based on that, you then engage in action that leads to suffering. So this this part is is very essential. So, so one has to kind of trace the uh, sources and then be able to really uh, understand or really pinpoint the culprit and also see how it is the culprit. And not just how it does, but what it is. It has to be known very, uh, as we say in the Heart Sutra, Correctly, perfectly, completely, right? It has to be understood. Understood. When mere making making effort uh, will not be enough. There's no one going to give any concession. It has to be squarely emptiness understanding that really fits squarely against the self grasping.
That's the only way by which it could it could attack it. But it is not an easy thing. Understanding emptiness in its fullest form is it means really understanding all the nuances and as well as uh, what do you call mm, solving all seeming contradictions all seeming misfits mismatched and more importantly to be able to really situate conventional truth and then ultimate truth one into another without anything anything uh what do you call uh straying away that's why the difficulty is not in seeing the first level of dependent origination or the second level of dependent origination rather the third level of dependent origination although in the words of gishishitabela only speaks of two dependent origination and I can perfectly see that point there. But I prefer speaking of three levels of dependent origination, and it has its sources in Tsongkhapa's writings as well. So the first two levels of dependent origination are, are a pointer from afar to emptiness, but not quite there. But the last one, that of dependent designation, of reducing everything to mere designation, nothing, mere name, nothing, nothing objective. Almost to the point of sounding like things are not there. <laughs> That's not quite it. Things are there, but not from there. If at all it makes, if at all it makes sense, things are there. Things are where they are, but not from where they are at present, but from a projecting mind, conceptual, conventional, from a subject. So it's not quite idealistic as that of this Chitramatra, where it says the consciousness just extends to every, everywhere the things are. If it could withdraw it, it could just draw everything in and then nothing is left there not quite that kind of mind dependence but mind dependence in the sense of being necessarily being merely labeled nothing but merely labeled and that first that needs to be understood very clearly because there are so many subtle points by which it could go wrong or by which one could think one has understood it, one has got it, but not quite. So it would be good to, good to bring up what the nuances are, what the nuances are. Uh, it is this, but not this, it is this, but not this, like that. And, and, and then bring in expressions like not seeing is the supreme seeing. 
right? Not seeing is supreme seeing. Emptiness, nothing but a mere, mere negation, nothing but that. Uh, and yet at the same time, it doesn't contradict with conventional truth. Things are, things are, things are dependent on causes, on and and are regular uh, in their causal uh, relationship, causal dependence. Yet at the same time, not an iota of any objectivity in there, but merely leveled. But at the same time, it is not saying that. But just by merely labeling, we can make everything. It's not saying that for making, we have to make of efforts. But whatever you do, and you succeed, you unsuccceed. Whatever, however big a structure you may made, while making it, when have made it, when destroyed it, at all given times, when you look very carefully, they all they all will be nothing but levels, unfindable. So that's why we insist on saying emptiness is pointing to the status of or the mode of existence of things, how they exist, not how they are made. That is to be understood. It's not that mind is making everyone, right? It's not like that. Oh, anyway, this part is, and then after having understood it, see that it is mistaken. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, uh, what do you call Align with the reality. The reality is just uh, uh, that 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 grasping at an inherent existence. Inherent existence is doesn't align with the uh, reality, and emptiness is is it, it aligns with reality. So that one has to see very carefully, so that one could then expose self-grasping as being a false, and then see how that is responsible. Very necessary for all the afflictions. And that way you could see afflictions, no matter how strong, whatever they may be, they can be, they can be debased. They can be brought down by pulling the rug under their feet. You just take the self-grasping up, it's all dissolved. Like, like we had the meditation in the daytime, Everything dissolved. <laughs> Everything bosses down once the self-grasping is taken off. Everything in terms of afflictions. So that that connection has to be seen. Otherwise, one would, no matter how much one tries, one wouldn't get any conviction. That is very crucial. That's the reason why in certain scriptures, just as in Gishishtapila's yesterday's teaching, he pointed out how although he did it in a in a in a in a in a way where it is balanced he said emptiness and inherent and dependent origination are both the most cherished um, what do you call essential teaching of the Buddha and that they are the same thing but they are the same thing with Enoas <laughs> They're not quite that the exact same thing, but in any way, so that part has to be understood very carefully. And then, having understood it intellectually, is not not enough. Of course, one has to start from there. Particularly with regard to this topic of emptiness, for those who are studying it anew, using using reason and 
reason in Jewish understanding is the mass is the only way to go about. Some who manage by not studying much and med meditating on the mind and eventually getting it is because they have done their homework in the past life. Not that they just got away with it. <laughs> that is the only way. Like in the case of Shariputra, when he met Aswajit, asked, who is your teacher? What is his teaching? All he said is, the four lines. And there's not much there, right? <laughs> I mean, everyone would say, what the big deal there? What the heck? Shonyantham jayjulayshum. Things come from causes. The causes have been pointed out by the Buddha. The cessation of that cause has also been taught by Tathagata. Okay, so? So what? There's not much there. No details there. Once you bring the details, then we can discuss. Because what is the expression? Something, something is in the details. The devil is in the details, right? <laughs> so please come for, come with the details. Then let's see if we could find the devils there. But this is just general. But it clicked because of his past acquaintance, past acquaintance, past habituation. That's the reason why we have. Okay, I will not go off there. <laughs> so. So, so, I mean, here contemplating all these can be eliminated is just a short sentence here, but it is a pretty heavy, heavily loaded, heavy duty statement here. Sometimes people, people kind of shy away from studying philosophy. Uh, and uh, and being what do you call intellectual, mm. but in I mean that's because in the West I may say uh, when I say okay, okay in the West philosophy is pursued for the sake of philosophy for the sake of knowledge. I think it, Professor Garfield. Uh, offered to teach philosophy early on in Buddhist dialectic school. And uh, so in the course of discussion, they talked about knowledge and that the whole thing, the whole philosophy is about knowledge. And someone asked, and what do we do with knowledge? <laughs> what? After we gain knowledge, then you become knowledgeable. <laughs> What about the problems inside? What about them? What's the connection? I don't know. <laughs> That's not the case in philosophy in Buddhism. It's all oriented. oriented. It is all soteriological. It all is aimed at this project of pursuing lasting happiness. 
by really breaking down the details of, of the causal sequence. And there, the most crucial thing is cracking this, cracking this, this, this facade of truth put up by self-grasping. Until and unless we do that, we just keep keep on circling. We may go up and bounce up and bounce down, up, bounce down. You have this you have this show, TV show called Wekomo. <laughs> it is yeah, it, it's a game, yeah. Wekomo. You keep hitting it, you succeed in putting it down, but it pops up. Because it hasn't been uprooted. That would be the case. Even with Bodhisattva also. That's very clear in, in Songkhapa's writing also, in, in other writings also, in the word, in the ones that we recite, right? Without, without this, there's no... Even in, I think, is, is that uh, Acharya Arya Deva who said, Shigunyiba Meva. There's no other door to liberation but through emptiness. So you better like emptiness. <laughs> be friend with it. Know it in and out. Totally be friend with it and feel comfortable with it. Otherwise, you can't get through that gate. You just go back and put back and put back and put. Not go through the gate. If not through the first gate, then not the second, third, fourth. Paragate, parasamgate is out of question. <laughs> okay, so it is pretty loaded. It's a heavy duty. <laughs> Rest in the awareness of the potential of your mind to become omniscient. Rest? Is this the time to rest? Do you have time to lose? No time to lose. Time, the clock is ticking. When would that last day come? When, when would that last day be? No telling. But here, resting is resting in the awareness of the of the potential of your mind to become omniscient, and that also includes. That that has been very well explained, and very well, what you call, uh, furnished, with many approaches to it. The potential of mind to become omniscient, which means the potential of mind to become, to to, to assert, to assert or to reassert, its primordial. Free nature. Now here we can use the word primordial. From beginningless time, mind has never been. In penetrated by afflictions. So it's because of that freedom that we have the chance of surfacing that, beginning, beginning, bringing it to the surface. Okay, I will leave it there.
Now let's move on. Otherwise, Venerable, when she comes, she will say, What did you do? You were supposed to choose from any topic you want. So that's with the assumption that this would be too short as a chapter. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Is liberation possible? To review, disturbing emotions and wrong views are called afflictions because when they arise in the mind, they all afflict us and disturb our mental peace. By the way, the question of mind is very interesting. As I was sharing, the other day, one of these sessions, to really try to see that there's a mind within us. Which is, which could have come from before we were born, from before, which Peter have just started with started started with this life or even later after our birth when the when only the brain has fully developed we have to have a sense of sense of this mind though closely working with the brain and other physiological elements but in its essential nature it has to be a continuum of its own. Of course, always connected with a physical energy or physical companion with it. Of course, that is only mentioned. Uh, the mere mention of that happens or begins from the highest yoga tantra, where everything ends. <laughs> so until then, it has been kept away. But it's all pointing to, to that. So, anyway, it's very interesting and very important to really assure oneself that, yes, where the neuroscience or the science in general is trending is not, not quite the full story. As I was saying, as I was telling you, if, 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 if brain were everything, including what mind is, then yes, if we could imagine the full awakening of all the potentials of the mind, we would be pretty crazy. Fully crazy, fully compassionate, fully angry, or like that, at all, all at a time. <laughs> like that. Because the centers of the brain of, for, for these emotions would have been the same. Would have been. Would have been there. It's not that you take it away. You there, and then you are talking of the neurons there, kind of gaining full, full uh, culmination. That means angry at the best of you, at the uh, everything at the best, even including anger, compassion, everything. I don't think we, we want to. We want 
Jeg siger, jeg kan ikke bestå det. Det er sådan noget for ham. That's one thing. Now the another thing is, in the scriptures, or in our actual life, we see people differ in their mental capacities, in their mental attitudes and mental dispositions. Particularly if we take the instance of afflictions, we are very different in what ex- what affliction we are strong in. Or if at all we are strong in any particular affliction. Or we or if at all we fall under the influence of the afflictions. There could be three categories. One who is very strong in affliction and in a particular one. Another not strong in any of them, yet at the same time getting upset, all of this getting getting all the flavors of it. And then third one, who hardly gets disturbed. And sometimes we could see that even in the animals also. There are some kind animals. From the scripture, we speak of that as how one had spent in the past life. Those who have indulged in them, indulged in them, had dwelled in them, they get that particular trend of affliction stronger. Those who have not dwelled in them, but at the same time not put any effort in addressing them, those are the mediocre ones. Those who have put special effort in attacking them, those are the ones who are tamed. It doesn't get that irritated. Otherwise, how would we explain this from neuroscience point of view? And then in Shantideva, Shantideva's text, he speaks of past life, not by saying somebody remembered this, somebody remembered this, somebody remembered this. That could be used, but that's not a universal reasoning. And that's like really coming to the last, last straw of it. Instead, he says, see how the dispositions carry on. And how we develop over lifetimes is by persisting on those practices. And then special practices include, we don't speak of it so much, uh, or has not come up so much uh, in our in our discussions on the karma and whatnot. But there's a big role that the prayers play. I am calling it prayer. It's similar to dedication, but it's like directing it. So you have earned, you have worked hard, you have earned some money. Now your decision is whether to use it for good purpose or bad purpose. So it's, there's no guarantee unless you unless you dedicate it, unless you have earmarked it. Once it is earmarked, nobody can touch it except for that purpose. Likewise, earmarking it. Otherwise, you could have earned you could have earned a good merit, but then 
air market for a bad purpose, it could result there. And that's also in doing with cause and effect. So, there's not much time there. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, with regard to the third third contemplation or third reflection, the potential of mind to become omniscient has to be has to be ascertained by using several means. One of I mean his holiness was suggesting even doing like this. You open your eyes and face it to a picture of a Buddha or whatnot, after you have seen it clearly, then push yourself to completely ignore it and bring up something in the mind and let the mind be clear on that object while the eye is squarely on the figure that you are totally ignoring it and trying it, trying to see if you could still come up with the picture in the mind and then make it clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And what does that reflecting agent looks like? That's one way of kind of assuring oneself that, I mean, in a way, nobody doubts that you, we have a mind. <laughs> right? But at the same time, it pushes hard as to whether it is one with the brain and that's going to stop with the brain, we might say, maybe, maybe not. Then where does it put our practice? For aspiration, for aspiring for a better life next time, next life, better birth next time, liberation thereafter, even full awakening for the oh, sake of all sentient things. So it's very crucial, because otherwise the aspirations will remain mere words. So he's even suggesting, as I've shared earlier, waking up the first thing when you were kind of hazy, not quite awake, but not not quite in sleep, in a hazy state of mind. See if you could catch your mind. Where there's great chance for the mind to be not obsessed on anything. Complete blank, mere clarity. Clarity in the sense of mere reflecting, mere understanding, mere knowing but not knowing any content, specifically. That way, a certain, yes, there is such a thing as mere knowing and mere luminosity. And then also think of the, the since I cannot push through within this time, then also think of the different levels of the mind. Our wakeful time, that level, we call it gross. Anyway, that's another level, type of mind. When we sleep, that's another level of mind there. Within sleep, when we are dreaming, lucid dreaming or dreaming, that's another level. There's mind definitely there, but of a different nature. And then deeper in deep sleep. There should be mind, 
We should not have gone mindless. <laughs> By the way, we do not go mindless. Not in the usual expression, but... <laughs> By the way, we do not go mindless at any time, since our birth till our death. Even when somebody is in coma, he or she has mind. What about before that? Why does it stay put in the, in the lifetime? Why does it never, 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 never sever? If, if so, then how could it have started anew at the birth? Why it can't be a continuation from before? Some, there is expression, somebody is out of mind. They're not out of mind, they're in their mind in their worst way. <laughs> they're in their mind in their worst form. Somebody has become, somebody has taken the better of them. Ah, that's a very interesting expression. Afflictions have taken the better of them, right? What would be, what would be a better thing for us? To be in control ourselves? And that is lost to afflictions. That's why the afflictions got the better of us. So, at no given time, at least in our birth, there's no time when we were known, we have no mind. Why is this so? Why that, why, why that has to be? We may say, oh, it's always present there. But then there are weird things happening. I mean, even among the animals also. There's some who don't have any, any, any brain as such. Just a mere stand of nerve. Even among humans also, there are people with 90% of the brain just filled with water. How will you account for them capable of things that we are not supposed to be? And then there are even neuroscientists Hard, do you say hard nose? Hard nose, uh, hard uh, headed <laughs> neuroscientists who themselves went through coma and stayed there for long and then came out, and all of their neuroscientific, neuroscientists, neuroscientific lines don't make any, 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 any sense at all. They come out a totally different person. And there's so many weird things are happening at the operations theaters also. So that's how, in that line, we speak of the mind. The mind at the level and at the time of sleep, deep sleep, is not even even it's not even called the subtlest. There is there are subtle, subtle, or or you could say subtler. When, when one has fainted, etc., during that time also, mind is still there, but a subtle mind. And then there's a group of three which are called the subtlest mind. They are called subtlest mind. They could have been called subtler, because there is even a subtler one. But they are so subtle that they are called the subtlest. And the other one is called the subtlest of the subtlest. And there's a purpose for that. So the settlers of the settlers is the death in, in, our, in our ordinary 
alive. The point of death is when the settless, settless of the settless mind arises. Mind, death is not a time when there's no mind. Even death has mind. We make a difference between death and dead. Person is dead when the body has no mind in it. The person is in, in, in the state of death, not dying. Dying has already, dying goes, the dying already passed. One is in the state of death. That's when this, when all of the, when, when all of these subtler consciousnesses have subsided with the, with the subtlest of the subtlest having no choice but to surface naturally. So those are things to be considered in, in terms of the potential of mind as well as in terms of what mind is. So the grosser they are, the more dependent they are on their on on physiology. Because the grosser they are, the grosser they are on mount energies. The the, the accompanying mount energy, which we spoke in terms of the settlers of the settlers, and because of that we say it is never ever only mind, but always with a accompanying energy. Just as it has its own corresponding settlers of the settlers energy, likewise the grosser ones have their own corresponding grosser level of physical component. And because of that, it affects the body. And we don't see the mind because mind is non-physical and whatnot, but it is there with that, with, 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 with functioning there with its inseparable entity of energy and that's uh, that's bumping with uh, that's bum bum bumping with brain cells and neurons and whatnot anyway so that's a theory <laughs> but not not to total baloney <laughs> because yeah given the weird things happening just as someone in the University of Virginia's uh, clinical department said, this world is bizarre, more bizarre than we think. So, particularly in the realm of consciousness, it is, there's so much going on there. So, the, so speaking of the potential of the mind, and particularly in terms of its subtleties, as well as its being not penetrated by the afflictions, thus being free from the beginning, and like that of the gold, like that of gold. This is a good analogy. You, you unearth the gold, but no matter how old it may be, how deep down you find it, it can always be separated from its dirts, and its purity can be asserted. But there was not necessarily a time when it was pure gold, with no stains at all. It doesn't necessarily have to be. But when we found it, it's with stains, and the stains have not penetrated into them. So likewise, the mind is. With this, we have the chance of reasserting its purity and reclaiming it. But deliberate attempt of cleansing it. With this, I stop here. And let's do the dedication. <laughs>